Well, every song we have sung has revolved around the cross of Christ, and that is because we are turning to John 19 this morning, picking up where we left off last week in John chapter 19, continuing to look at verses 16 through 30, John 19, verses 16 through 30. As we come to this chapter and these verses, we find Jesus hanging on his cross, where we left off last week. And he's experiencing the excruciating pain of crucifixion. This is after three and a half years of miracles of mercy, three and a half years of teaching his gospel. Jesus has now been beaten and bloodied. He's been scourged, bruised. He's been nailed, both hands and feet, to a tree, the very symbol of being cursed by God, forsaken by God. He's been raised above the earth to die. And it's all physical pain, all physical pain unmatched by any form, any other form of death, while also enduring the humiliating shame that Pilate and the Roman guards and the chief priests and the crowds and even the criminals who are hanging on their own crosses next to Jesus, all the humiliating shame that is being heaped upon Christ, the shame of being stripped naked and led through the Jerusalem streets for all to gawk at him, the shame of a sign being nailed above his head, mocking his pedigree, scorning his kingship, The shame of the chief priests insulting him with their words and taunting him, come down from the cross, then we'll believe you. It's a scene that should shock our senses. Here is evil being unleashed upon Jesus like never before. Here are the powers of darkness having their way with Christ. Here is Jesus seemingly helpless at the mercy of merciless men Here's one who has saved others, but he refuses to save himself. Here's the rightful king of the world dying a criminal's death. Here is the son of God's love being forsaken by his father and drinking down the dregs of his father's wrath. It is a shocking ending for Christ. And yet, despite the horror of this hour and all the evil and the pain and the shame that encompasses it, we read in Ephesians 5, 2, we read this statement. It's amazing that what is taking place at this moment is actually a fragrant aroma to God. Listen to the verse In full, Christ loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Here it is, as a fragrant aroma. It's a profound paradox. When we think of the cross, we do not usually think of a sweet smell. No, we think of a putrid stench. And yet what Ephesians 5 tells us is that at this very hour when the smell of death fills Jerusalem, there's a fragrant aroma rising to God. Why? 
because something else is taking place on this cross. Something in the spiritual realm that's pleasing God. That's summarized in those words, Ephesians 5. Summarized with these words, Christ gave himself up for us. The putrid stench is a sweet smell because Jesus is offering, willingly offering himself as a sacrifice for sin for us. Because Christ in obedience to his father was not forced to the cross. He was not coerced to die. He's willingly choosing to fulfill his father's redemptive plan. And Paul relates that to love. So the epitome of love, primarily a love for his father. That's driving Jesus. Saw that back in John 17, one, where Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come for what? for death, but even more, for the Son to glorify you. I love you. I love your glory. I love to display your grace and your mercy. I also love to display your justice and your wrath and your perfect holiness that must punish sin, even if that means sin being credited to my account, Father. I'm driven by love for you and your glory. It's one reason why Christ's death was a sweet aroma to the Father. This is an act of loving obedience to the Father. But it's also a fragrant aroma to God because it was an act of love for us, his people. That's Ephesians 5 again. Christ loved you. Now it's personal. Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, exactly what we're told in John 13, Christ will love his own to the end, to the max, to the cross. And the sweet smelling, sacrificial love of Christ is what we have seen from Jesus the moment his passion week began. We've seen love on display. It is because of Christ's love that he willingly gave himself up to his enemies without a fight. It's because of his love that he refused to call down a whole host of angels at his disposal. It's because of his love that he prevented his apostles for, from fighting on his behalf. It's because of love that he declines to defend himself before Pilate. To what we see today in verses 23 through 30, it's because of love that Jesus will remain on the cross. It's because of love that he will experience the full force of Satan's hatred against him. It's because of love that he will endure the full measure of his father's wrath against sin credited to his account. And he will endure it all. He will endure it all until every detail, every detail of his father's redemptive design is fulfilled. And he will endure it all until every act of righteousness accomplished on our behalf is completed. And he will endure it all until every sin 
Every sin for all who will believe and be saved, every sin is punished in full. This is a willing, saving, redeeming, horrifying sacrifice. But it is because of Christ's love for his father and his love for us. This is personal. So with that in mind, pick up where we left off in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And remember from last week, because of the profundity of what's taking place here, there are a variety, really a countless variety of angles through which we could view Christ's cross. Last week, we looked at the first two angles. We focused on angle number one, the physical pain of Christ's death, the physical pain. We then moved into the emotional shame, second angle, the emotional shame of Christ's death. We saw the physical pain in verse 18. They crucified him. It's clear. We then saw the emotional shame experienced by Jesus in verse 17. They took Jesus bearing his own cross. And then verse 18, when Jesus is raised in the middle of two criminals. And then verse 19, when Jesus is mocked with that sign, Jesus the Nazarene the king of the Jews. All of it pain, all of it shame that we can see with our physical eyes. But now as we transition into these last verses, we come to angles to see them. We must see them with our spiritual eyes. There's more going on on the cross than we can see with our physical eyes. There's more going on behind the scenes. There's spiritual implications of Christ's death. Again, why the putrid smell is actually a fragrant aroma. So we put on these spiritual eyes. We look at the details of what's going on. 
And we begin here with angle number three. Angle number three, we see the divine design of Christ's death. The divine design of Christ's death. Look at verse 23. Then the soldiers, four Roman legionnaires, when they had crucified Jesus, completely unconcerned with the agony Jesus was experiencing while hanging above them, they took his outer garments and made four parts. This would be Jesus' sandals, his belt, his outer robe, his head covering. Four parts. And they decide to divvy them up amongst themselves. A part two, verse 23, every soldier and also the tunic, that's his inner garment. So on the surface, this is a picture of victory. This is symbolic of a conquering army gathering their loot from a defeated enemy, in this case, a defeated and rival king to their deified Caesar. The king has been defeated. So Christ now hangs on his cross in utter destitution. This is the finality of shame. Everything, everything has been taken away from him even his dignity. In disgrace, he hangs in his nakedness, left with absolutely nothing to his name. But again, there's more going on than just what our physical eyes can see. There's more taking place in the spiritual realm. Because first of all, we have here, as Christ hangs on this cross, we have a picture of Christ's saving grace. We have a picture of Christ saving grace. This is a vivid picture of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the extent of love, the extent of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his grace, demerited favor given to us, that though he was Rich, speaking of Christ's eternal riches, infinite majesty, unmatched beauty. And you can see a parallel here. John 1 begins in this very way. The richness of Christ, John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, face-to-face relationship with the Father, unhindered. Christ before creation for all of eternity enjoys the perfect presence of a Trinitarian love, the riches that he enjoyed. And yet, Paul says, in grace, the son does not stay in the realm of glory. In love, he does not stay there. Now, he took upon himself human flesh Chapter one, verse 14 of John, the word became flesh. Well, notice what Paul writes, for your sake, he became poor. And here the word for poor, abject poverty, literally beggarliness. In grace, Christ lets go of that face to face, perfect, unhindered communion with his father, and he becomes beggarly. Exactly what we see in verse 23. It's a picture of that. 
It's the most visible picture of his spiritual poverty that Christ takes upon himself. Amazingly, not only did the Son of God have nowhere to lay his head when he lived, but when the Son of God dies, he has nothing, absolutely nothing to call his own. You cannot have more of an extreme than this. He leaves the infinite heights of heaven for the depths of abject poverty and shame. And why did Christ do this? Finish the verse in 2 Corinthians. So that you, again, it's personal, so that you, this is grace, through his poverty, through his incarnation, through his shameful cross, might become what? Rich. His poverty means our wealth spiritually. Christ is stripped of his clothes so that we would be clothed forever in his perfect righteousness. Christ dies naked so that we will never stand naked in our sin before his holy father. It's a picture of grace. J.C. Ryle writes this, Christ was stripped naked, his clothes raffled away. Why? So that we who are defiled with sin might have a wedding garment to wear as we sit down by the side of angels and not be ashamed. Again, a picture of Christ's saving grace right here. But there's more going on because the way John describes the raffling of Jesus' undergarment reminds us that Jesus is dying not as a criminal. So people thought that's what they saw. Again, spiritual eyes. Jesus is not dying as a criminal. No, he is dying as a great high priest who is offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for his people. That's what's going on here. We're giving a picture of Christ's high priestly work his high priestly work on our behalf. Notice the detail John includes in verse 23. The soldiers refuse to tear this undergarment, this tunic, covers the neck to the feet. It was seamless, that's why. It was seamless, that's the important detail. It was woven in one piece. Now normally, on the surface, this would be unnecessary because undergarments like this were common for the day, common undergarment. But John includes this detail, this seamless detail, woven in one piece, because he's letting us see behind the scenes. A seamless garment, if you look at the Old Testament, was the clothing of a priest, the clothing of the priest. Listen to Exodus 28. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, the first high priest, the one who would represent the people before God, the one who would offer sacrifice on the people's behalf. These are garments in verse 32, having an opening at its top so that it will not be torn. It's made from one piece of cloth. And then this statement, it shall be on Aaron, on the high priest, as he ministers where? As he ministers in the holy place, representing God's people, offering that sacrifice. 
That's why Josephus describes the priestly robe as a garment not composed of two pieces, nor was it sewn together, but was one long vestment woven as to have an opening for the neck, one piece seamless. That detail here is key. Jesus is not dying as a criminal. But again, that's what everyone thought Jesus to be. No, he is dying as a high priest who is offering the final and complete sacrifice for sin. He is the high priest described in Hebrews 7, a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners who offered up himself. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest described in Hebrews 9 who offered himself once to bear the sins of many. Now we saw this coming because in John 17, John pictures Jesus as the great high priest who prays for his people. He brings us before his father's throne. But now here in John 19, John reminds us that Christ is also the great high priest who dies for his people. He approaches the altar of God, the cross. He represents us in our place. He is fully man. And he does not offer a bull or a goat to atone for sin. That never atones for sin. No, he offers himself to his father. He can do this because he is fully God. He can assuage God's wrath against sin in full. We see here a picture of Christ's poverty, his grace. We also see here a picture of Christ's high priestly work for us. There's also a third picture, though, John wants us to see here, again, behind the scenes. And that is a picture of God's sovereign hand, a picture of God's sovereign hand at work. And understand the, the context evil is encompassing his son. Move into verse 24. So they, the soldiers, said to one another, let us tear it, let us not tear it, but cast lots. This is pragmatism. A garment, especially one of these undergarments, would be worth more in one piece than four. This here is a decision that accords with what is known about Roman executioners of the day. They were given the rights to the crucified victim's clothes, but at times and often they would have to gamble for them, as well known within the Roman army. In this case, they're gambling as a way to decide whose the tunic shall be. But again, John is not content. He is not content for us to simply see this insignificant, normal act with our physical eyes. There's more going on. Again, let's see behind the scenes, which is why John adds in verse 24, this was to fulfill 
the scripture. This was to fulfill God's sovereign design. And no fulfillment language has been the theme that has filled these final hours of Jesus' life. Nothing that happens is accidental. All of it is by design. We saw that in John 13, when speaking of Judas's betrayal, evil, Jesus said, it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In John 15, when speaking of the religious leaders' hatred of him, Jesus said, they have done this. They have hated me to the point of crucifying me. Why? How? To fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. It's fulfillment language. John 18. Pilate refused to acquit Jesus of the leader's trumped up charges. Pilate should have done that. John adds that this was to fulfill, again, fulfillment language, the word of Jesus, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Well, this, we'll see the same theme in verse 36 of John 19. Why do the Roman guards not break Jesus' legs? Verse 36, to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Verse 37, why do the guards spear Jesus' side? Because another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. All of this sovereignty, all of this design. But please notice this, every one of these scriptural fulfillments, every one of them involves the most heinous of evil the most heinous of evil. And yet John makes clear all of this, even the evil was a fulfillment of God's sovereign decree. Which is what we see play out in verse 24. The evil, the heartless, gambling away of Jesus' clothes, again at the foot of the cross, Jesus hanging above them, it adds humiliation to Jesus. All of that was not some meaningless rogue act of sin. There is never a meaningless rogue act of sin. No, it was fulfillment of God's design. Specifically, it was fulfillment of God's word prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. It's a psalm written over a thousand years early, earlier. A psalm. That begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Jesus' words from the cross. He's pointing us to that psalm. It's the same psalm we looked at last week. Psalm that chronicles every detail of Jesus' suffering. Well, now we see in this psalm that this also chronicles the sinful act of the soldiers. Not just the suffering of Jesus, the sin of the soldiers. Continue verse 24. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. And then John adds this. Circle it in your Bibles. Therefore, therefore, because this was predicted, because this was God's perfect design, 
Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Yes, the soldiers were driven by greed here. And yes, they treated Jesus as a conquered foe, the height of blasphemy. And yes, they were heaping more and more humiliation upon Christ. And yes, they were committing the evil they wanted to commit. All of this is sin. All of this is wickedness. But ultimately, these soldiers, unbeknownst to them, were actually carrying out God's sovereign decree. And they were carrying it out to the letter. They were fulfilling two specific details. This is not just fulfilling prophecy in some general sense. You know, they're fulfilling prophecy to the detail. The first detail, they divide Jesus' outer garments. Detail number one. And then second, detail number two, they cast lots for Jesus' tunic. Detailed fulfillment. Detailed sovereignty. I'm going to give you a theological phrase for the day. This is called meticulous sovereignty. Meticulous sovereignty. It's a sovereign authority that extends over every detail of your life. Everything. It does not matter how inconsequential or how minuscule the detail might seem. This is sovereignty over the sinful actions. That's included. Every detail, even sin. Sinful actions of fallen men. You can see every detail that God's sovereignty overrules from the duplicitous betrayal of Judas, that's John 13, the murderous hatred of the religious leaders, John 15, the wicked injustice of Pilate, John 18, and now the gambling of these soldiers, John 19. All of it evil, all of it overruled by a sovereign God. J.C. Ryle is right. This fulfillment here, this fulfillment proves that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ at Golgotha was a thing foreseen and predetermined by God. Even though all of it is evil. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion, every part of the solemn transaction was arranged in the divine council. And the smallest particulars were revealed. And just think of all the details involved. Think of all the sin this includes, all of it. From first to last, it was a thing foreknown. And every portion of it was in accordance with a settled plan and design. Redemption is no afterthought in the mind of God. It is no afterthought. It is the overflow of love for his people. In the highest, fullest sense, when Christ died, he died according to the scriptures, according to the will of God. But this is only something that we can see with our spiritual eyes. This is the divine design of Christ's death, the divine design to every detail. 
leads into a fourth angle here. Fourth angle we can view the cross of Christ from. Again, John's still wanting us to see behind the scenes something greater is taking place. Angle number four, we see the sinlessness of Christ's death. The sinlessness of Christ's death. Because if Christ was going to offer himself up as a sacrifice for others, there's going to be substitution. If he's going to take upon himself God's wrath for others, if he's going to fulfill Isaiah 53 and be that suffering servant predicted, if he is going to do that, he must be pierced through for not his transgressions. He must be sinless. He must be pierced through for our transgressions. That's substitution. He must be crushed for our iniquities. If he's going to be, John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of himself, but the sin of the world, if that is going to happen on this cross, then Jesus must die as a sinless Savior. It's a prerequisite. Nothing less than a sinless, righteous perfection will do. He must be the sinless high priest. What's the background for this? Well, every Old Testament sacrifice that was offered, you remember the Old Testament, every Old Testament sacrifice must be unblemished, unblemished, spotless. It's a symbol of sinless perfection that holy God requires to enter his presence. Think of the Passover lamb sacrifice. Your lamb shall be unblemished. Your lamb shall be unblemished. Think of the peace offering. It must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Think of Numbers 19. They must bring an unblemished red heifer in which there is no defect. Over and over again, Numbers 28, you shall be careful to present my offering. This is the offering which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, one year old without defect. The Old Testament is clear. The Old Testament is a bloody book. But it is clear, sacrifice for sin requires an unblemished, no defect, sinless substitute. Well, it is to this sinlessness of Jesus that John now describes. Continue verse 25. But, it's now a contrast. You have four wicked soldiers. You have four women who love Jesus. They're not gambling over his clothes. They're grieving over his demise. And they are standing by the cross of Jesus. Who's there? For one, his mother. This is Mary, no doubt. There are words filling her mind. Words spoken 33 years earlier. You remember this child is appointed for a sign to be opposed. There's the cross. A sword will pierce your own soul. That's taking place here for Mary. She's grieving. She watches her son die this cruel death. 
There's other women there. His mother's sister, unnamed here. We have Mary, the wife of Clopas. We have Mary Magdalene. She becomes important for the resurrection. She's the first person that Jesus reveals himself to. All of that's an eyewitness account. John is there. We'll see that in just a moment. All of that sets the stage for the first words spoken by Jesus from the cross that John records. So not the first word spoken, but first word spoken that John records here. What words will John focus in on? Verse 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, here's John, the gospel writer, standing nearby, and just note, you have John, you have the four women here, five total. There's no mention of Joseph. Why? Because he died by this point. Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. What's going on here? Why are these the first words? Why record this detail? Well, again, there's two ways to see this. On the surface, Jesus is taking the role of the eldest son of the family. The oldest son is responsible for providing care and protection and provision for the mother. In fact, that phrase, behold your son, behold your mother, it's similar to an adoption formula of the day. Jesus is turning over the responsibility to care for Mary that had fallen to him since Joseph died, taking that responsibility and now giving it to John. That's on the surface. John accepts it. Verse 27, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. That's one way to see it. It's from a purely temporal perspective. Certainly it's a sweet scene, the son's love for his mom. But there's something else going on here. What's going on here? Why this detail? Why this statement is because Jesus, with these words, with these words, Jesus is fulfilling God's law. And he is maintaining to the very end of his life, he is maintaining his sinlessness and his perfect righteousness. Despite all of the agony he faces, despite all the mocking he is receiving, at a time, at a time when no one, no one would blame Jesus for thinking more about himself than others, right? At that time, Jesus fulfills Exodus 20 and he what? Honors his mother. He provides a son to take his place. He honors his mother. He fulfills every Old Testament command that calls for God's people to take care of the widows. Think of Isaiah 1, do good, do good. What's the, what's the good? Plead for the widow. Here's Jesus pleading for his own widowed mother, pleading for her, taking care of her. He must do this. He must do this to fulfill the law. In the words of James, Jesus is visiting this widow in her distress, the height of distress. 
in which James then writes, this is the epitome of pure and undefiled, perfect, unblemished religion in the sight of God. It is amazing, even while his own life juices are fading away, Christ continues to be the perfectly obedient son. And he fulfills to the letter God's law, even to his last breath. We can add to this though. There's a second way Jesus is maintaining his righteousness here. Second way Jesus is demonstrating his faultless perfection. It's not only by what he says, it's by what he does not say. Because every time Jesus spoke from his cross, it was always in grace, always. It was never in retaliation against his enemies, never. Just think of Jesus' words from the cross. Think of what he says about the soldiers, the very soldiers who nailed him to the beam, the soldiers who gambled away his clothes. Jesus prayed, Luke 23, Father, pour down wrath upon them. That's what we would pray, right? No, Father, forgive them. Who prays that? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He prays for their salvation. It's a prayer his father answers when one of the soldiers declares him to be the son of God. To the criminal who had mocked him and then turned to him in saving faith, what does Jesus do? He offers him assurance. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You're coming with me to heaven. And now here, once again, Jesus chooses words of love, chooses words of mercy and kindness. He does not spew forth words of hatred towards his enemies. This is how unblemished, how sinless Christ is. Just think of the passage. What does Jesus say? Out of the heart, the what speaks? The mouth speaks. It's a scary thought given what we say, right? Well, here we see a picture of Christ's heart. It's perfect. It's sinless. This is why Jesus could be pierced through for our transgressions. The sinless one is punished for the sinful ones. This is why he can be crushed for our iniquities. The just for the unjust. I'm bringing you to Isaiah 53. Why? How? Listen to verse nine. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found where? In his mouth. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is why Peter writes in 2 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross Again, the question is, how is this possible? Why can he do this? Take our sins upon him. Here's how, here's why. Because he committed no sin. And the greatest demonstration of Christ's sinlessness was that there was no deceit, no sin ever 
found in his mouth. And what example from Jesus's life does Peter point to to prove that point? This very moment he hangs on the tree. This very moment. When he could have spewed forth hatred, no, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. It's a picture of Christ's perfect, righteous, sinless heart. John is clear here. John is clear. Jesus is the sinless, perfect lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of every spotless, unblemished lamb ever offered as a sin offering. He's the final one. He's the only righteous one. He's the one who has no moral defect whatsoever in him. And thus John ends where he begins. It is Christ and Christ alone who can take away the sin of the world for all who come to him in saving faith. There's so much application you can draw from this. I'll give you two, two ways. Number one, this is how desperate we were in our sin. This is how desperate we were in our sin when we came into this world. Here's what we needed. We could not climb the rung to God. This is what we needed. We needed no one less than the sinless son of God to pay for our sins and die in our place. That's how desperate we were. Second way we can apply this. It's when we recognize that this is how gracious our God is. This is how gracious our God is. He sent his eternal son for this purpose. We were desperate in his love, in his care for us. He sends his son for this purpose, for this cross. And this eternal son came willingly And he loved you. He loved you and willingly in love for his father and in his his love for his people, he gave himself up for us. Give praise to him. He gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Be humbled by the cross but be raised to the heights of praise and thanksgiving. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who loves your people. And you are a God who is sovereign over all things. And in your sovereignty, you decree every detail. Our redemption is no afterthought. No, this is the loving care you take for us. And Christ, we thank you that you came willingly from heaven to earth 
you died willingly, the just for the unjust. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you open up our eyes to see this in the spiritual realm, to see behind the scenes. It's a work and a miracle from you that you open up our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Spirit, do that work today for those who have not seen the glory of Jesus, who have not been humbled by their sin and raised in praise because of the love of our God. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.